Hi, my name's India. This is Be More Orca, Buck the Menopause. Now, I'm not a medic, or an expert, or a celebrity. I'm just going through it myself. I was totally blindsided by my symptoms. I knew nothing about this stage of my life. And then I discovered neither did any of my friends. So I'm on a mission to find out everything I can, explore every avenue to help us manage our symptoms and get our lives back on track. I don't know about you, but it really feels as though the conversation around menopause is finally happening, which is brilliant. And it's in no small part down to my fifth inspirational orca, writer and producer, Kate Muir. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. Very nice to meet you properly. Hi. It's hard to believe that your two documentaries only came out in 2021 and last year. They changed the menopause landscape completely. And so much has happened in such a short space of time. And personally, they were definitely a light bulb moment for me. I remember pausing the first one when I was watching it and running and getting a pen and paper and writing stuff down. So how did they come about? Well, they came about from the car crash of my own menopause, which was not, you know, merely a car crash, but a full Selma and Louise off the cliff with divorce, mental health, memory loss, heart palpitations. And, you know, I mean, one of the key moments for me certainly was that I was having heart palpitations at night that were waking me up at four in the morning, incredible anxiety. I'd never had them before. I didn't know what they were. And I went to the doctor a lot and got you know, tests and there was nothing wrong with me. And then the other thing that happened to me was I was writing a shopping list one Saturday and I was the film critic of the Times at the time. So I was remembering 350 films a year and who directed them. So I had a huge kind of memory bank, but suddenly I kept feeling that things were going a bit wrong there. I was writing this shopping list and I thought, must shave my legs. And I wrote down the word shaver. And I knew there was another word for the thing. Yeah. But I didn't remember what it was. And about 15 minutes later, I remembered the word razor. And that set me into an incredible panic because my mum had recently died of Alzheimer's and I'd been aware of her losing kind of domestic nouns over 10 years and covering up for herself. And so I just thought, I've got Alzheimer's. I rang all my friends. I said, I think we've got Alzheimer's. It's the end of the world. And they're going, Oh, actually, we've all gone in HRT privately and you'll get your memory back. And I'm going, why didn't you tell me this? None of them had mentioned this. This was a sort of whispered, oh, yes, actually, we've been doing this secretly behind closed doors. Well, this was like six years ago. So it was slightly embarrassing. People didn't talk about it. It was aging. I was in the newspaper industry. People weren't admitting to being 50 or anything like that, you know. It was a different atmosphere. So once I realized what was happening to me and I had been able to find out about it and I, I hadn't been able to research it and I met Dr. Louise Newsom, who was absolutely fantastic. And I just thought, right, I am going to make a documentary about this. I can't let this happen to anyone else. I can't let this mental health stuff happen to people. And the stories started to pour in. So I got commissioned in the end with much struggle, I have to say. It turned down a lot. <laughs> Did you feel as though it was slightly career suicide? Yeah. They got turned down by two channels. 
Anyway, so we got it commissioned. Then we got the money. Then we got a presenter who was not to be. We were ready to go at the beginning of lockdown. (laughs) And they took back all the money and they shut down the production. And then sort of September afterwards, I thought, right, we'll put it up on its legs again, see what happens. And at that point, I'd heard about Davina from a friend who gave me a number. And I rang her and she was driving home. And I said to her, look, this is what I'm doing. This is my menopause. This is my mess. I don't want this to happen to other people. And she said, ah, this is my mess. (laughs) I don't want this to happen to other people either. And by the time she'd sort of parked her car about an hour later, we were making a program together and I'd never met her. So it was one of these extraordinary pieces of luck that connected at the right moment. And then we made the first program. And then the second program, which was more about the mental health and mind aspect. And then sort of after the first program, there was this huge menopause movement. And I think it just brought it to tipping points. It was very much not just us, but we opened this great big door for people to all run through and shout and shout they did. And a million more women, according to the pharmaceutical journal, have gone on HLT since 2021 when that program came out. And obviously it's not just us, it's the whole conversation. It is the whole conversation, but I would say everyone I speak to talk about the Davina docs, but that was the, as you say, the tipping point suddenly made mainstream. It was on Saturday night at nine o'clock and you suddenly went, oh wow, this is talking about me and no one has ever talked about me. As I say, I, I was there with a pen and paper in my hand going, I have to write all this down. It was extraordinary. And did the book, because the book came out in 22, and that is, if the documentary opened my eyes, then the book blew my mind. Anyone going through the menopause or thinking that they might be going through the menopause has to go and read your book. It is just the Bible on the menopause as far as I'm concerned. Did that come about because there was so much you couldn't fit into the documentary? That came about because of lockdown. And I was really, really rubbish about baking sourdough bread and very bored. (laughs) And I just got all this information ready for the documentary, ready to go, completely frustrated. And I thought, right, going to do a book. And because it was lockdown, it was brilliant because it was first lockdown and all these scientists were in shock, stuck in their back bedrooms with no one to talk to. And they all had lots of time. So I ran Yale and Harvard and California and Australia and all the heads of all the menopause societies. And they gave me their time. And I don't think I'd have got that while they were all busy, but they weren't busy. One good thing lockdown did. (laughs) So it was brilliant. The science is great because it is the science of total joy. It's when you can find out something that is going to have this positive effect for women. And I'm speaking about HRT. I do speak about alternatives and everything else in the book. But for the majority of women, this is an extraordinary gift that we can take. It will affect our long-term health and indeed decrease our long-term all-cause mortality by 30% women who take HLT. And that's a huge thing for me. And that's my next kind of fight really in a way is to make it clear that HRT is not just about your hot flushes. It's very much about osteoporosis, dementia, cardiovascular disease, joint problems, colon cancer, macular degeneration, you know, the numbers of women that go blind that don't need to because there's not estrogen, you know, in their eyes. And the fact that medicine doesn't understand that and it doesn't understand the new transdermal estrogen, I think it's a crime and a crime against women. I really do. One of the things you're very vocal about with your HRT encompassing testosterone for women, that's been sort of bandied about a bit recently and people think, "Mm, do I, don't I, should 
third eye. And I know a lot of people that say, you know, oh, all the celebs are on testosterone. And then you get medics going, you don't really need it. But actually, you put me in touch with a British Journal of General Practice article by Louise Newson saying that women produce three times more testosterone than estrogen prior to the menopause, which is a shocking fact. You think, oh, well, maybe we need a bit of topping up. But estrogen is the thing that we're always told we need. So testosterone is our biggest hormone. It's women's cardinal hormone. That is an extraordinary thing. And that estrogen is further down the ladder. And also that estrogen and progesterone, you know, if, if you're in normal menopause, fall off the cliff at 51 and disappear entirely. But your testosterone has been going down since you were in your 20s or 30s. And so by the time you're 45, 50, it's half of what it was. And it's, in my case, I had none. For some of us, we really do need these hormones back. I mean, I think someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for instance, you know, who went on until her 80s in the Supreme Court in America, she probably had a lot of testosterone well. But there are lots of us who have none, and it makes a huge difference. It's certainly in my case, and I've always had it, in terms of mental health and memory. The British Menopause Society actually changed their guidance on testosterone after we used it in our program, and they took out all the really kind of radical bits in their guidance, and they took down that bit of their website, which we used in the program, and put on much softer guidance that just suggested you got it for your libido as you wanted, but most women didn't really need it. Now, I think that is really interesting, the politics of what went on in the British Menopause Society, that they had to take their own guidance down from their website. And I think there's a deep, deep fear of testosterone. And what we know, you don't have to argue about this, you could look at a female brain scan and see where are the testosterone receptors in the female brain and where are the estrogen receptors in the female brain. Guess what? They are everywhere, both kinds of hormone and progesterone too, but they are all over the female brain. Don't just tell me testosterone is a sex hormone. It is not for men. It is not for women. It is about mental health and muscles and energy. And we know that. And the idea that this great big kind of fat dog of a sexist medical establishment is keeping this gender bias going is shameful. Why do you think that is then? You used their own guidance. Yeah. And then they took it down. What was the guidance that you'd used? Well, the guidance was for clinicians on testosterone. And it said testosterone may help with energy and mental sharpness and all these other things. And we had it in our program notes because we've got to fact check everything for Channel 4. We just can't say things, right? So we had it. And then they put up stuff on Twitter afterwards saying, oh, you should only have testosterone for libido and it's not one of the most important hormones and everything. And I sent them back their own paper on Twitter to say, but here are your guidelines. And then it disappeared. I hadn't actually thought about that till we did this just now. But I would love to talk to whoever's up there. And, and there's just some weird thing going on. And in 10 years' time, believe you me, women will be taking more testosterone. And it's in tiny amounts. So I'm not growing a beard and I've got this huge amount of energy. I feel like I'm, you know, 30 or 40 again in terms of what I'm able to do and what I'm able to tackle in the world. We don't want to sit at home. No. This is helping us and we weren't meant to live this long. And if I've got to work until I'm 68, if not longer, then I want to work at full power and not force power, you know, why not? And it does help with bone density, muscle mass, 
Cognitive function is the one for me. Same with you. That was the debilitating menopause symptoms for me. I just lost all ability to speak or remember anything and just felt I was losing my mind. And it's mood as well and energy, not just... I mean, it does help with sexual function, obviously. Having personally just gone on it recently, it was that thing of you go, oh, yes, oh, I've got a bit of desire back. And actually, more than just a bit of desire, the orgasms are... You were just like, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten how much this had diminished. I think that's worth, that would interest people, I think. I think you have better orgasms, but it depends on who you are. And there are some people who don't need it or don't seem to want it or it makes them feel aggressive. And obviously that that's not the right amount they're guessing or whatever, but a tiny amount. I get mine on the NHS, so it was seven months to queue for the clinic. And so I use a tiny blob of the male stuff. So I've got a bottle of the male stuff for almost a year. <laughs> so so he said, well, I must be using a wee tiny, tiny, tiny bit. You see, I have a little sachet and you're meant to make the sachet last for eight days and I find that really difficult because there are times you squidge it and half of it comes out and you're like oh no and so that is annoying that there isn't a female version and we have to mess around making it work for us. And what also is happening is that the rich and the well-informed are getting their hormone back and ordinary women aren't and they need it just as much and you know you've got to put yourself on a seven month waiting list to try and get into the NHS clinic. You've got to go and pay £80 for a tube privately or you know you've got to struggle three or four times with your GP to get put through on this and obviously any very tiny number of women in Britain are on testosterone and you know unless they're getting it privately and compounded so it's not fair and I think that the HRT thing is going to divide people in a socio-economic way too because if you look at where HRT is being handed out by the NHS, it's all over the south of England. You look where the good patches are being handed out or were being handed out when you could still get them. Yeah. You look up north, you look in Scotland, the same penetration is not happening. And we know that about inclusivity, we know that in the most economically deprived areas, you're a third less likely to get HRT and you're more likely to be put on the old HRT, which has risks. It's the combined pill rather than the transdermal HRT. It's a government issue. And actually, we in the menopause charity have just written to the government. They've got a whole thing about long-term health strategy and they wanted contributions from charities. So we have just sent in our long-term health strategy talking about this and talking about inclusivity. And I think there's a massive economic argument because... Like HLT, cheapest chips, right? It's £120 a year for just progesterone and estrogen, the good transdermal stuff. How much does a hip operation cost on the NHS? Well, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, it's the long term. If we're thinking, how do we save our NHS? Then actually, the health benefits of all these women being on HRT and not getting cardiovascular problems, not getting osteoporosis. I went on HRT mainly because my maternal grandmother had osteoporosis. And now I think, well, hang on, did she have osteoporosis purely because she didn't go on HRT? Yeah, because a hip operation costs £12,000 on the NHS. And you know, lots of those older women die in the year after their hip operations. It's horrible. It's a horrible thing. Two two women in my street have had it and I've helped them both actually recently. And it is a miserable, miserable struggle. We don't need to do that. One in two of us get osteoporosis after 50. What about if we throw away the Zimmer frames? Because HRT increases your bone density by about 3% over two years. And your bone density just crashes by 10 or 20% between 50 and 60. So even if you're like me, a runner, and you're banging your bones every day, 
you're still not going to keep up your bone growth at that level. And most people aren't a runner, you know, so it's really bad. And oh, I'm guessing all I'm... No, no, I love this. I read a quote from you that was brilliant. You said that you quite often find yourself getting angry every day at something still. And I love that because that's the journalist in you. And it does make you angry. I so naively in my 20s and early 30s, I thought I don't need to be a feminist because I'm on the shoulders of all these amazing women that have come before me and I've never been stopped doing anything. And when menopause hit me and the more I looked into all of the male-centric medical establishment, it makes me furious. I've suddenly become much more of a feminist than I was earlier on in my life. This is outrageous that women are being denied this. And I mean, even worse, I'm reading a book by Dr. Annabelle Suamimo, and it's called Divided, and it's about race bias in medicine. And she has worked on a group called Decolonizing Contraception, which she set up. And when you work out, you know, what's happening to women, but what's happening to this layer of women, who are not so privileged or advantaged or discriminated against or whatever. And it is extraordinary. You know, I mean, like 15% of white women are in HRT, 8% of black women. Why is that? Yeah. Which group is more likely to get dementia? Black women are more likely to get dementia, according to American studies. And it's not just access to HRT that can be incredibly divisive socioeconomically, but also the type of HRT. Now, I want to talk to you about bio-identical compounded HRT. I know a lot of women who can afford to, and they choose to go on it, as it's touted as being more natural, bespoke to you, tailored to your very needs. And that all sounds incredibly appealing. But you've got some horror stories in your book, and you personally had some terrible experiences with bio-identical HRT. Yeah, that's right. I think it can be really complicated. I think some of it is probably perfectly all right, but there is no guarantee when you get that bio-identical HRT, and it's often in a lozenge or a cream, and it's made up by a specialist pharmacy somewhere, and not all of those pharmacies are having an eye kept on them. And you are supposed to get a particular potion that just fits you so nobody else is going to test it. And in my own case, when I got turned down, and this is about five or six years ago longer, by my NHS doctor for HRT, I went and got it privately because that's what lots of my friends were doing. And I got these lozenges. They were absolutely fantastic for a while. It was estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Then I got a new batch of lozenges and they tasted different. And I don't know whether it was the compound they were put in, but anyway, I reacted differently to them. And within a week or so, I started getting tremendous bleeding. I also didn't want to come off HRT because it was stopping my heart palpitations. It was helping my memory. And I ended up actually with the NHS in the end, going for a hysteroscopy, a cervical biopsy, all this other stuff. And my womb lining had kind of grown because the progesterone in the little lozenges was not working for me in this particular batch. How do you know? And that was that particular batch. That's all. Wow. So it wasn't that you had a reaction to the bio-identical. It was the difference in one month to the next. And that fast-tracked you down a cancer route, didn't it? When you say that you were having all these biopsies, that was because the NHS was worried that... Yeah, if you get unexplained bleeding after menopause, they put you on usually a two-week fast track, which is great to get you examined. But of course, you panic because they say, oh, it's a two-week fast track. In fact, HRT, all the time, women get bleeding until they get their levels sorted out. But unfortunately, the bioidentical people 
did not give me anything that sorted it out. And then I went again to Dr. Louise Newton and I got the right amount of progesterone and the right amount of estrogen gel. And I could balance the two very carefully and see exactly what I was putting into my body. And it's all regulated. Afterwards, it was all on the NHS. So I got it all on the NHS. And, you know, that is just much safer because you know those products are tested. They're body identical. They're an exact copy of your own hormone made from soy. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the stuff the NHS will give you if you can get it, if there aren't shortages. That is the issue, isn't it? (laughs) But that's a talk for another time. That's the thing to say, I think, isn't it? To highlight that it is the same stuff. The stuff you get from these very expensive and you have a lot of blood tests that my menopause specialist, Dr. Katie, says are fairly unnecessary. A lot of expensive blood tests to test your supposedly levels each month. And you have no way of knowing what is being put into each month's batch. And as you say, unlike the NHS, there's no regulations for it, are there? The British Menopause Society very much advises against the bioidentical hormones because you cannot know what you are getting in those lozenges. And the other thing is the method of administration. Rubbing progesterone through your skin is not necessarily the best way to get progesterone into your system. A lot of it works best orally or in a coil. So lots of us do not pick up progesterone well through our skin, although we do seem to do very well with the estrogen. So there's all sorts of problems like that. And I just think you can get this on the NHS. Maybe you need to go privately to sort out what you need, but you can really get this from a decent doctor at the NHS and that's what you should get. And it is safe. And it is really sensible. There's a lot of people selling a lot of snake oil out there. We know that. You know, there are some of these private clinics that I was looking up. So I was thinking of doing a program about what was going on there and testing some of the samples. And there were huge legal questions about us doing that. And it was a bit of a nightmare. But lots of those clinics are offering also crystal healing and Botox. And you think... Mm, crystal healing and Botox, great. And you're going to be in charge of my health and my womb and my risks. I don't think so. You know, this is serious. Hormones are serious. If you can, use your own doctor. That's brilliant advice. And I also want to talk to you because I know it's a subject that's close to your heart about the health benefits of HRT, especially with brain health and Alzheimer's. Now, that was something that your mum died of, did she? Yeah. So my mum died of Alzheimer's in 2015. And it was just after that, that I went on HRT and I had real memory problems. So I went into this panic and and then my memory sort of basically came back on HRT. And that was an extraordinary moment for me because it was very clear to me that words that had been missing were back. And then I started looking into a chapter on Alzheimer's, dementia and HRT and its effects. And it's absolutely clear now doing the research that the old forms of HRT are not particularly good for dementia. The old oral forms that had these quite heavyweight synthetic progestins in them and things like mares, urine, estrogen. Primarin, yeah. It tends to create risks of clots risks of strokes. And of course, that's vascular dementia coming through there when that starts to go wrong. So it kind of can, once you've got it for a very long time, increase your risk of vascular dementia. Whereas your body identical HRT that is, as we said before, made from soy, copy of your own hormones, 
The stuff you get on the NHS. Not increased risks at all. Dr. Roberta Brinson in Arizona has been studying estrogen in the brain for 30 years. And she looked into what was happening with 400,000 women in Kentucky, actually, and their medical records. They were middle-class women who had medical insurance. So both cohorts, the ones on HRT and the ones off it, were kind of healthy-ish people who had some money. So they were a comparable bunch of people. It wasn't as if the rich were taking HRT and the poor one. This was comparable. And it showed that people who were on the body identical estrogen had a 73% less likely chance of getting Alzheimer's. And it also seemed to improve Parkinson's as well and other dementia. It just was absolutely clear that the transdermal HRT was behaving in a completely different way in our body in terms of vascular dementia and in terms of Alzheimer's. Because I think our little estrogen receptors in our brain were going, oh, we know this stuff. This is the same stuff. We'll be quite happy with it. Why wouldn't it be? It's logical that dementia and Alzheimer's, particularly Alzheimer's, the prodromal, the kind of starting phase of it is in perimenopause. That's when you begin to see the kind of decay and the brain changes in perimenopause. And that's why we all go nuts. We are genuinely feeling what is truly happening in our brains. Our brains are rewiring and hormones make them rewire in a different way. And that was the thing that was my take-home standout stuck with me from your documentary was the Dr. Lisa Moscone. Lisa is great. She's the Wild Cornell Women's Brain Unit and she's done these great studies and great scans of what estrogen is doing in the brain. But exactly, that thing of the scans of a pre-perimenopausal and then a perimenopausal woman was slightly terrifying. One was bright purple and green and the other one was blue. You thought, it is a physical change that happens to our brains. Yeah, basically the female brain rewires as it does in adolescence, as it does in pregnancy. So this is the third rewiring for many of us. You are basically changing from petrol, which is your estrogen going in and fueling the glucose mechanism that just fuels your brain, to diesel. Basically, your blood has to work much harder to pump to your brain afterwards. And there's about a 10-year period for a lot of people where that's a bit of a mess and you're changing fuels. And it's also during that 10-year period that you see the beginning of amyloid plaques building up which are the plaques that could be, not always, but could be a precursor to Alzheimer's. So when you look at what's happening to that brain and the gray matter is going down and then up again later on, the white matter is going down. I mean, it's really scary that we haven't been told about what's happening in our brain at this time. But instinctively, we all know because we have these mood disturbances, we have these hot and cold disturbances, strange things happen to our eyesight. You know, you just think, oh, something is going on. And just the simple thing of struggling for words. Yeah. You can feel your synapses not connecting. I felt like mine was constantly like, and just not getting there. So one of these studies, it's called KEEPS. It's the Kronos Early Estrogen Prevention Study. That showed that transdermal estrogen maintained brain volume in the area of brain that helps with memory and thinking, planning and reasoning, and that estrogen has a protective effect on the brain, which is amazing. And what's bonkers is a study just recently came out, a Scandinavian study, which was saying HRT causes dementia. 
of course, it was all about the old kind of HRT. It was done years and years and years ago. And so you were looking at the kind of HRT that would be likely to cause vascular dementia and strokes. And also the tiny numbers of people that were going on HRT at that time, they were the people who were having a really, really bad time. They were the self-selecting people who were having 20 or 30 hot flushes a day, couldn't function, really suffering. And that was the only reason that doctors would give them it. If you have hot flushes, that is a sign of vascular risk. And if you have huge numbers, you're more likely to have vascular problems. Hot flushes are a warning sign. You know, they're not fun. They're not a power surge. They're a warning sign. And these studies on the old HRT are still being churned out and the headlines are still being written. And it is scientific sloppiness not to differentiate. These are two completely different products that do completely different things. And are we going to get new randomised controlled trials? Because every time I speak to Dr. Katie and every time I speak to anyone, they go, oh, yeah, more studies needed, more trials needed. And as you say, all the trials that are touted to us, very recently we've just had huge headlines, haven't we, about the risk of dementia, HRT splashed across. And if we're keeping being touted these old trials with the old form, when is the medical profession going to catch up with us and say, well, actually, we need to see what's happening with this new... Well, I went and met the head of Alzheimer's research and I give him a book actually and we had a big conversation about it and what research could be done and they are really, really interested in this. So I've got hope that they have opened themselves to the different kind of HLT and understanding it. And we also talked to Maria Caulfield, the government minister, about that as well. I mean, you know, hopefully there's going to be some scientist who's going to get this grant, but you can do huge studies by looking into the kind of medical records of women, the observational studies, but there haven't been that many on this kind of HRT that we are all on now. So we are five years older or 10 years older. It is very hard to see what this HRT is doing. These are long, long, long long-term trials. And all I know is this drug makes my brain feel better. Giving me my own hormones back makes me much, much more together intellectually. And I am absolutely aware of that. I've got a mum that died of Alzheimer's. I've got the Alzheimer's gene. What would you do? Would you think, oh, I don't think I'll take HLT because it's doing so many other fantastic things for me anyway. And for all of us, a woman called the Smile Starter on Instagram, but a fantastic Instagram. She just said, why are we paying for invasive operations, but we're not allowed back our own HLT? So hip replacements, how expensive, all the tests you had to do for all of your cancer scares, it's just costing the NHS so much more than HRT would prevent. I know. It's not a treatment, is it? It's a preventative for all of these future diseases for women. At the menopause charity, we've just written a paper, a very serious scientific paper, which has gone into the government on this to say, these are the long-term benefits of HRT. These are the long-term economic benefits for you. Brilliant, because the tragedy being, until it comes down to the bottom line for governments, actually, this will save you money in the long run. Yeah. But well done. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for fighting too. Yeah. <laughs> You're my fifth orca on this podcast. Do you consider yourself out the other side now of menopause? I don't think there is another side because I think you're always in menopause. But luckily, you know, there are people like us avoiding it by keeping our hormones at kind of a 49-year-old state. So, no, I, I don't think there is another side. Your body continues to decay. <laughs> but in a mental health sense, in a cultural sense, in a career sense... 
I would say very much, I am out the other side and standing on top of menopause and giving it a good kicking. And, and he deserves it because it's like you dragged this thing out of the ground and then you picked it up, you know, giving it a real good thumping. And I think it's really, really important that we should do that. And also, I don't care what I say about anything because I think it gives you this strange confidence because you think, well, it's very important that I get this information out to people and I don't care how I do it and I don't care if anyone laughs at me. And I don't care if I'm wearing something stupid, but I really, really want to talk about this. And I've also, in my own life, I've been a film critic, war correspondent, but I've always been someone looking out for justice. I was very interested in what's happened with women in the film industry, and I was there at the Harvey Weinstein time. So I've always been keen on that things should be fair and just. And I think menopause is so grossly unfair to women of a certain age in the way we're treated and the way we're made into hags and witches. And we may embrace that, but we want to be in good health too. Well, this is why I chose Be More Orca, because female killer whales go on to lead their pods and communities because they realise they have so much power and experience and wealth of knowledge. I just felt we need to reframe menopause. As you say, it's not hags and it's not decrepit and I'm not prepared to fade to grey. I'm really confident and powerful, feel way more powerful now nearing my 50s than I ever did in my 20s or 30s. The other thing about orcas though, because I read that book by Darcy Stanker that has follows the orcas and menopause. That was where I got it from. It was reading that book. I went, oh, it's very, very interesting. What she doesn't look into is what hormones orcas have. And I went and looked up the science of robber samples of oracle. You're so amazing. It didn't occur to me to do that. And <laughs> the most interesting thing about orcas who are, you know, these powerful grandmothers is they have a huge amount of testosterone in their systems. When you look at us, right, we have about a tenth of what men have of testosterone, even though it's our lead hormone. Orcas, and the samples vary according to season, orcas seem to have about a third of what the male orcas have. So those women, those big female whales, are running on a lot of testosterone. And that is really interesting, isn't it? That there are the food-seeking, dispute-fixing power. And yes, they naturally have a heck of a lot of testosterone still. That's fascinating. Like said, they're all like Stephensley or Monty or whatever. They go on to 90 and they have their menopause at sort of 40 to 50 years old. So they go on for another 40 years post-menopausally. And it just really resonated with me that this is what we need to we need to do. We need to be more orca because we shouldn't think, oh, well, this is me done. I'm useless now. And you talk about the menopause as being a reboot. What do you mean by that? It stripped me right down to the bone. And I really had to put my life together, put my job together, put my new relationship together, rebuild things with my children, rebuild my career, learn how to make TV programs. And I suppose for a lot of people, it's a moment where they think, well, you, you turn from birth, you turn from fertility towards death. And you're thinking, right, I am whatever age you are, 50, 60, I've got 20 years left. What am I going to do with those 20 years? Are they going to be important? Am I going to change something? Am I going to help people? Am I going to be creative? I'm going to make something. And I think there's nothing wrong with being aware of death. I think it's very good for keeping you in line. Do you get on with it and, and really want to enjoy the second half of your life? 
and maybe do amazing things with it in terms of, you know, I just hope so many menopausal women go into politics. You know, you've got someone like Caroline Harris there who's an absolute bomb and, you know, doing far more than the menopause in her kind of remit. And the world needs menopausal women. The workforce needs menopausal women. They need to be in the boardroom. They need to be, as you say, in politics. I speak to a lot of women who talk about the idea that actually I just don't care as much about what other people think about me. And it's a time to start to consider yourself a bit more. And I think a lot of people look at their marriage and think, oh my God, I've had three children. I've been cooking 70 something meals a week. I've been thinking about their washing, their this, their that, their other. You suddenly are not thinking about 70 meals a week and you're suddenly not thinking about three different lifts you have to give to people to different places that day. And then you sort of meet yourself and you go, oh, you're a bit empty. What do you do? And uh, it's looking at that empty and even pausing and saying, let's see what it's going to fill up with. What are my desires? And, and I think for a lot of us, that's a difficult time that there really is literally the pause and long, the kind of great leap forward. And, you know, you can make a terrible mess of it and it can go wrong and then you've got to keep coming back and coming back and trying again. Now, I think that's very, very hard Especially if you're struggling with your menopausal symptoms. If you're completely underneath all of your symptoms, then it can seem an impossible task to try and think about that. But if you can get on top of your symptoms, however you choose to do that, then I do think it can be a really exciting, as you say, future. Looking towards the future and going, what am I going to do for this next section? Talking of which, your most recent documentary was about the pill. Do you think your work on the menopause is done then? Or are they inextricably linked? No, I'm not finished. I'm not finished with midlife. So I'm doing a book about the pill, which is an investigation into the hormones and mental health really around the pill and the kind of incredibly kind of gender-biased science that we have suffered for 60 years. But the next book, which I have got half sort of written and half done, is on midlife. And I don't know what it's going to be called, but I'm thinking sex, drugs and midlife goals or something like that. <laughs> it is basically going to be about sex and midlife. It's going to be about menopause and some of the latest newer signs that I've got through. But it's going to be about mental health and it's going to be about that metamorphosis. It's going to be about making that change and sort of finding yourself and facing your future and all the mad stuff we do. So it's a much more, I think, hilarious and eccentric book than my more medical, angry menopause book. But I felt I hadn't talked about what was happening in the mind. I'd really talked about what was happening in the body. So this is my mind version. So I will see what that turns out. But again, because of sort of menopause Instagram and the menopause mind, I have so many people talking to me about the changes in their lives over the last five years, actually. I have gathered all these amazing experiences and, you know, people have talked to me and done interviews and I've got a big menopause hive mind, a big midlife hive mind that's not really written by me, but by the community. Yeah. And, you know, they're all bonkers. (laughs) (laughs) They're just feisty and bonkers. Um, uh, Or maybe the ones who contact me are, I don't know. I think that's a brilliant thing. We should all be feisty and bonkers in our midlife. I can't wait to read it. That sounds bloody brilliant. Well, you are an extraordinary powerhouse. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me, Kate. It's been amazing. Thank you very much. Next time, it's the final episode of season one. Hard to believe that we've done 25 episodes already. 
I'll be looking back on my menopause journey and the podcast so far. If you want to be more orca, head to bemoreorcapod.co.uk for all the latest on what's coming up. I've cherry-picked articles to keep you informed so you don't have to sift through the news. And become a member. Tell me what matters to you and what questions you want answering. Help shape the pod and help other women just like you so we never have to feel like we're going it alone again. And if you've liked this episode, please subscribe as it helps with those pesky algorithms and lets others find us and become part of our pod. And follow me at b.more.orca for my no-filter menopause diary. Menopause.